Okay, as in go. Sorry, one second. Fork Tales, a podcast that feeds the food and beverage world. Oh, awesome. Fortales is brought to you by Vigor, a branding and marketing agency for passion-driven, innovative restaurant, beverage, and hospitality brands. Learn more at vigorbranding.com. If you love what we're serving up, please give Fortales a five-star review on your podcast service of choice. Think of it as a tip for good service. Everyone, today I'm joined by my friend Eli Altman. He's creative director at 100 Monkeys. Uh, you may have heard him before on a previous podcast. And I am like so super excited for this episode because we're going to tap into some fun conversation around naming for restaurant brands. And I think specifically for virtual restaurant brands. Uh, but before we hop in, for those that don't know you, Eli, give a hello and a little bit of a backstory. Hey, uh, good to see you again. Um, my name is Eli Altman. Um, like Joseph said, I'm creative director at Hundred Monkeys. Uh, also have a publishing imprint called No Picnic Press, uh, where I put out books like Don't Call It That uh, and Run Studio Run. Um, and yeah, my studio is based in Berkeley, California. We focus primarily on naming um, and a little bit of writing, as long as we we keep it short. Um, and yeah, been here for about. 12 years creative director for maybe seven or eight of those years. Um, that cover it. Yeah, I think so. That's good. Yeah. And I mean, side note, the books are fantastic. So, um, run studio run is geared towards, uh, agency and or creative studio owners. Um, I read it in, in basically one sitting of a few hours and it's just chock full of great information for those of you that are listening who are, uh, running a creative studio. So I highly suggest picking it up and we'll have links uh, to do that. And then um, don't call it that is actually the first um, introduction I had to, to you. Uh, I read that book and there was a lot of um, out loud preach on um, <laughs> reading that book, you know? And so it's like a, it's a workbook, right? It's kind of like a workbook text. It's very yeah. easy to read. And, and I would say anybody who doesn't want to get, academically deep into the nuances of naming, but wants a good guide, a good Sherpa, that's the book to read. Um, but again, we'll, we'll have a, um, we'll have links there so you guys can check that out. But uh, they're, they're definitely not just books to just say one thing about and, and march on. I had to, I had to deep, dive in deeper. So, all right. So for the restaurant world, um, the, the emergence of virtual ghosts, dark kitchen brands, whatever you want to call them, um, has completely knocked the lid off of naming. And, um, this is something that struck me, um, in many ways. Sometimes it was with a smirk and a little bit of a huzzah. And sometimes it was like, Oh God, please don't. Uh, other times I was kind of like, wow, you could have done so much more. Um, but we've seen names like Morning Shift, which is a breakfast concept, or Ministry of Curry, which is an Indian concept. And uh, I saw one called Bad Mother Clucka, um, which is a, a chicken sandwich concept. Um, those are just a couple of examples. What do you think has sparked this newfound creativity and embracing of what I would consider to be pretty... Um, uh, not dangerous, but ballsy for 
lack of a better term, naming. <laughs> uh, other than the pandemic? Other than the pandemic. So maybe a little pandemic uh, <laughs> drunkenness, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I guess I view it in a couple stages and the, the lens that I'm putting on it as I'm thinking about it has to do with like the experience or the ways in which these sort of food providers can interact with their customers, right? So if you start with a restaurant, that's like about as complete an experience as you can hope to have. People come to you, they, you know, experience your food the way, exactly the way that you want it. Um, You know, you pick the interior design and the silverware and uh, the plating and, you know, it's like all, all up to you. Um, and then, you know, I think maybe an intermediary step between that experience and, you know, like ghost kitchens, dark kitchens, whatever we want to call them would be, um, food trucks, uh, where it's like a pared down version of that experience. Um, you're still handing the food to people, but they're, if they're sitting down anywhere, it's on a park bench or, you know, at some sort of like event, um, you have some control, not as much as you, you know, as you do in a restaurant, Um, and you know, people kind of take your food and do what they want with it. After that point, they're not, you know, uh, counting on you for ambiance. Um, and you know, and then, uh, like moving forward to ghost kitchen is like the only experience you have with them is like the food and then whatever brand you're seeing like online or in an app or however you're, you know, you're sort of placing that order, which, you know, obviously creates some of the issues that people have with ghost kitchens in terms of like not necessarily being able to verify like the health and safety of either the food you're eating or the, you know, labor practices involved or, or anything like that. I know there are like reasonable ways to, to execute this, this concept. Um, so not to sort of paint with too broad of a brush here, but um, you know, the interaction that you have is so limited in that capacity to like, is this food good? And maybe you're just seeing like the name or like a little logo and a list of, you know, places where you could order food. So it just puts the name into a sharp contrast that, you know, before had all of these supporting elements around it um, to create a more holistic experience. So now because there's so much pressure on the name and you really need to like stand out in a list, um, it just kind of pushes people towards, you know, more wacky, interesting you know, ballsy, whatever you want to call it, just like more, more out there options. Um, which, you know, to be clear, those options would still work if you had, uh, you know, a restaurant or, or a food truck. I know you see a lot of that type of naming in food trucks as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think it's like exclusive to, to this concept, but certainly, uh, pervasive within it. Yeah. I mean, so on the other hand though, I've seen some pretty boring names, um, like F and B Atlanta, and Sarah's chicken. Um, <laughs> what, so it's, it's almost like this stark contrast, um, which is almost, um, it was equally as shocking where I was like, wow, uh, did you even really think about it, Sarah? Because I presume Sarah is the one who created the chicken. Um, so in your opinion, is, is this dangerous to, to be blasé and boring or direct like that? Or is there a benefit to this? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, it's a, it's a universal issue, right? This is not, not exclusive to ghost kitchens or restaurants or food, broadly speaking, right? That, um, lots of people name things like they don't want to get picked on at school 
and they pick like the most boring name that nobody's ever going to say anything negative about. But that's kind of the biggest risk anyway, is that nobody can remember what you're called. They forget about you. They don't tell their friends. Um, you don't make an impression. Right. And so like, there's this kind of thing where I think people who do that are looking to avoid risk, but in doing so they are actually taking a huge risk. Um, and you know, we see that in food, we see that everywhere. Um, there's, there's lots of people who, you know, don't want to get made fun of for, uh, an interesting or creative name, but it's like the way that, you know, we think about it is, um, you know, you could position it as like a, a spectrum from one side to another, where on one side is risky and, you know, the other side is completely safe. We view it as like a circle, um, or almost like a horseshoe with like a little gap in the middle. Right. And so on one side is like amazing, great name, uh, you know, all the way on the other side is like a ridiculous name, like wacky name, something that like, uh, you know, kind of isn't great, but is definitely like weird or attention grabbing or like clearly has an effect. And then mm-hmm. in the middle up here is, you know, Sarah's chicken, like not to, you know, call her out specifically, but like the, the sort of boring names. And that, so in a sense, it's like the poles are really close to one another because what it takes to have a great name is actually like pretty close to the effect of like a wacky or ridiculous name. Um, you know, but the, the real, like the middle ground is really like where the bad names exist, the area where people aren't trying to do anything interesting, aren't trying to grab any attention, which is the same, you know, you could apply the same, you know, approach to design, right. Where, it's like sometimes you swing for the fences and you miss, but at least you swung for the fences, um, <laughs> you know, and in the middle are just all the things that are completely safe and don't really leave an impression. And, and you know, for us, like we would rather have someone try to do something ridiculous and interesting um, and fail than try to do something completely bland. Yeah. So, you know, when you start to think about maybe psychologically what creates um, a name that stands out, I think it starts by understanding I'm probably not going to sound very smart at this, but um, understanding what is it standing out from? And and something that stands out is standing out from a large mass of sameness. So thinking about that is, is there a moment where the wacky actually becomes the sameness and Sarah's chicken actually stands out? Yeah. Good question. Um, I think the first part of that is absolutely true. Um, it's something that we see in like beer and wine, um, like very saturated industries where people are willing to take risks. Um, and so what you end up seeing is that it's such a saturated market that people have tried everything. Um, but the answer when people have tried everything isn't to do something plain. Um, it's to just think about it more and figure out like what your niche is, figure out what would be different in this space. Um, you know, and it's, it's often a bigger question than, you know, naming or design it's, it's holistic. It's like, well, okay. So if there's clearly already a ton of people doing this, why should they go to you? Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, if you can answer that question, then you can really effectively use naming design, um, you know, marketing as tools to like drive home those ideas and that message, because you have something interesting to say. Um, you know, if you're, if you don't have something interesting to say, and you're just trying to put a, like slap a cool word on something, you can do that, but it'll only get people to your front door. Um, 
you know, and if, if they try it once and don't come back, it's like, all right, you know, maybe better than them not showing up at all, but you're not really uh, getting a good customer out of that. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned beer. Um, cause God knows we just do not need another hop pun. Um, or just silly names for the sake of silly names. I mean, talk about an industry that has gone, I think, gung-ho. Um, and with that, like, outside, of, of course, beer too, but outside of beer in the uh, topic at hand, how far is too far when it comes to a creative name? You know, I, I was in this um, New York Times piece about risque names specifically. Um, we're just, like, looking at people who were really, like, you know, pushing the limits is like somebody who had a, uh, like breakfast cereal company called poop, like a champion. Um, <laughs> you know, and they talked about, uh, like big ass fans, uh, was featured, mm-hmm. you know, prominently mm-hmm. in this. Um, and none of them regretted it. Um, they all felt like their ridiculous name was doing them tremendous service. And, you know, I, I think it really gets to one of the, you know, important elements of a lot of this stuff, which is that like, you're going to turn some people off no matter what you do. Um, and the quicker you accept that and are willing to really come up with something that the people you really want to communicate with are interested in, even if that means that some of the sort of, you know, people on the border fall off. Great. Um, you know, mediocrity is driven by a desire to appease everyone simultaneously. Um, and it can't be accomplished. So, you know, the sooner you forget about that and the sooner you are sort of willing to say, okay, well, some people probably won't like that, but some people will love it. Um, you know, then you get real fans, um, Mm -hmm. real people who are willing to like tell their friends about it and, you know, tweet about it and do whatever. Um, so, you know, I think to us, that's kind of the, the lesson there, um, which is that like, does being ridiculous or risque or interesting have risks? Absolutely. But so does everything. Um, and you know, just that, that risk of like sounding like everyone else is puts you at a distinct competitive disadvantage. Yeah. I I think it was, um, y'all's website where I first encountered this one liner and it it has just stuck with me ever since. And I'm talking about years. Um, and I don't recall if you, I think we talked about it before in person, actually. I don't remember if you created it or if it was an adaptation, but it's something along the lines of, if you spend your time trying to fit in, you're going to waste your budget trying to stand out. And yeah. I just think it's brilliant. It's, it's a brilliant one-liner that has really stuck. Thanks. Um, yeah. my, my dad came up with that, actually. Uh, so nice. credit, credit to Danny Altman on that one. Thanks, Danny. It's a great one. I say it a lot, and I do credit y'all. I just say 100 <laughs> monkeys, though. Because um, it, it is succinct, and I think... As much as you hear this, um, if you stand, if you try to stand for everything, you'll stand for nothing, and yada yada. Like all these adages have been said over and over again. But I like that one specifically because it taps into the financial implications of mediocrity. Um, you know, one of the things that we say at Vigor, um, you know, you've done a really good job at strategy and, and absorbed it because it makes innovation feel more comfortable. And I think that's essentially um, the driving force behind why people end up with watered down or mediocre names, brand identities, communications, and so on and so forth, is we as humans have an, an innate desire to want to fit into something. And when you haven't effectively defined what that something is, it becomes just fitting in. 
Um, and my gosh, it's a highway to beige. So I love that line. And I think it's very, very profound. Um, and it, so I think with that, in this effort to create something, one of the benchmarks that people end up with is it has to sound like a fill in the blank in this case, restaurants. So I don't know how many times I've heard that where it's like, Oh, interesting. Um, it doesn't really sound like a restaurant. And I'm always like, then we've done our job, you know, <laughs> ta-da, here we are. Uh, like one of the ones that we created that it was a moment where I was surprised they bought it, uh, meaning bought into it, uh, was my neighbor Felix does not sound like a restaurant, but it has so much legs and it has such a good story. Um, but we put a lot of work into that. So a lot of folks are doing this on their own when they do, they kind of just end up throwing ideas at the wall until something hits a eureka moment with them. Can this work in your opinion? And what are some of the dangers of going about it this way? I mean, (laughs) I think a lot of people think about, opening a restaurant or a food truck or whatever as a risk to begin with. Um, and because that's a risk and, you know, maybe that makes their family uncomfortable or, you know, or whatever, um, they look to not take risks in other elements of what they're developing. Um, and, you know, naming branding design all feel like these areas where like, you know, you look at other people who are successful at, at what you've done or what you're trying to do. And you sort of say, well, if I were like them, I'd be doing great. Um, but you know, the problem is like modeling yourself act after other people's success has its limits. Um, and there's some things you can take from how other people achieve success, but there's others that if you attempt to do the same thing, people will be like, Oh, cool. Another person did another one of those things. Um, you know, that's great. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, in terms of the question of like, can, can people achieve success like that? Um, sure. You know, I mean, there's lots of restaurants, brands, broadly speaking, that are perfectly successful with terrible brands, um, you know, or terrible names, you know, I mean, I think I, (laughs) I spent some time living in LA and like one of my favorite things about LA is that like, my favorite food tended to be from these like anonymous places in strip malls. Um, and so it had this like hunting feel to it where you're really trying to find these like, you know, cool, authentic places. And, and it was almost like if they had polished brands, it would cheapen what they're putting on the table. Um, Mm -hmm. and so that applies to naming too, you know, it's just like, um, in some instances, yeah, like you can, you know, you can make something really cute or funny or, you know, something you're like, yeah, that's a good name. Um, but you know, and, and if you're, if what you're doing is, is high end, you know, or, um, you know, or you're spending a ton of money on ingredients and like all these things and you need to like convey some sense of like, you know, uh, class or, or expense or whatever. Like I, I perfectly get it. It makes sense. Um, you don't really want to go to a very poorly branded, nice restaurant. Um, that (laughs) doesn't really give the, you know, the right impression, but like, you know, I don't, I don't personally, I don't put a ton into ambiance with food. This is like a, a constant disagreement that my wife and I have. Um, (laughs) and you know, like when I lived in San Francisco, my favorite burrito place was called El Burrito Express number two. Um, 
And so, you know, I'm a naming <laughs> like it's a great name. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, it's it's just there's something like it, you know, in this sort of which I I think most of the time I think is ridiculous this like quest for authenticity in food. I don't I really like try not to buy into that as a concept. It's just like does it taste good or does it not? And I I love cooking and baking and like I yeah. just you know, it's it's all interesting to me, but like you know, nobody's trying to like fake you out with a name like El Burrito Express number two. Um, you know, it's just like, if that what, what's so good, great about that is I feel like you have to say the whole name every time. Absolutely. Like yeah. it encourages you to not nickname it. Like, it, like it's almost like a, a rite of passage. Like if someone's like, Oh, you want to get El Burrito? You're like, wait, do you mean El Burrito Express number two? Right. You know? <laughs> number one is all the way out by ocean beach and you're not going to go out there. And I, I even haven't been out there, but whatever it is, I don't think it's as good. Yeah, probably not. Number two sounds like it tries harder. That's an Avis reference. <laughs> um, you know, and so I think where, you know, where I got some of my thinking around naming stem from my uh, stints in, in the music world uh, growing up, I played in, in some bands and you know, what I always loved is like, there was no wrong move for naming a band except don't be boring. And, uh, you know, one, one of my favorite band names, I don't mind their music, but they're not a favorite is, and you will know us by the trail of dead. Uh-huh. And it's just, to me, when I saw that, I was like, that is hysterical. And, and talk about standing out. I mean, you know, during that time, you know, you had band names that were like the three, three word, like stone temple pilots or whatever. Um, and it definitely broke convention and, and kind of thumbed nose at what people may have considered rules or a formula for success, as if a name would guarantee success. However, a name can chop your legs off out from underneath you if you are quite boring, like we were talking about. So, you know, with that, do, do you have some tips? Um, I mean, obviously, you do. You wrote a book on it. But do you have some quick tips for people who are listening that you share for folks looking to create a new restaurant name? What, what are some things they should do or maybe steer clear of? I mean, you know, so we're going to make the assumption that you're hopping into a saturated environment, right? Yep. Um, you know, if you live somewhere rural and you're opening like the first Nigerian restaurant in, you know, like in your you know city or town, then, you know, you have a little bit more leeway. But, uh, you know, if we're, we're assuming that there's other people offering similar fare in your area, I mean, I think the first thing you need to do is look at what all of them are called. Um, look at which ones are good and which ones are popular. And, you know, in doing so, you need to resist what we call target fixation, which we didn't come up with. It's like a term that essentially you steer towards what you're looking at. Um, mm-hmm. And so you're not looking at these things in order to copy them. You're looking at these things or sound like them. You're looking at them in order to understand what aren't people doing. Um, you know, what, like, is there, you know, is there a new angle on this that like other people haven't really thought about yet? Are they all naming them after like towns or, um, you know, dishes or uh, trying to make a pun, you know, Um <laughs> You know, like if you're opening a far restaurant, like, please don't do a pun. Um, right. every, at least around here, everybody already pulled that move. And then, yep. and then instead of being like, oh, well, our pun's better, you just sound like one of the ones that everybody else did. And so, you know, you just want to, one, just understand the field, like know, know what's been done. And then, you know, the other piece is just about, 
really being clear with yourself about like what you want to put on the table. Um, you know, will your food be different and, and how, like, why are you doing this? Why are you opening this place? Like, do you feel like there's a, like, you know, people aren't doing something in like the traditional way that you were raised with, or, uh, you know, nobody's trying to do like a high end version of what it is in your area. Like, think about like, (laughs) why, like, why are you existing? And, hopefully you can figure out a way to tie your name to that. Mm-hmm. Um, like, so that when people ask, Oh, why are you called that? There's like a story behind it that, uh, you know, that's interesting. And that like will stick in people's heads. Um, because names are really introductions to stories. And if you can use that payoff to like cement the idea in someone's head, they'll remember what you're called. They'll tell their friends about it. You know, it's all about this kind of like first opportunity, um, you know, that first option where people are like going between three or four restaurants to, you know, to go to, and, you know, uh, two out of those three options are places they've been a hundred times. And then there's yours. And it's like, how do you get them over that? Like initial hump of risking, you know, not having something good, uh, or not having something that at least is like a known quantity to them, right. This sort of explore exploit problem. Um, that that's a huge problem. And I think it's one that's exacerbated by, um, the, the effects of the shutdown, the lockdowns and the pandemic and everything. Um, you know, one thing that I've had conversations about is during the lockdown, <clears throat> I got even better at cooking, you know, and I was already okay, but I got way better. And so now our decision-making matrix as it were, isn't what kind of food are you hungry for? There's now another layer of totally is that food better than the, I would make it. And, and I've got to say like half the time it's not, or it's like, yeah, I mean, it'd be great to have them cook that, but golly, is it really worth X amount of dollars? Because I could probably cook it comparably or better for cheaper. Um, yada, yada. So there's now there's this other layer, which I think <clears throat> pushes people to, you have to stand out with the name first, especially on third-party delivery apps where, like you said, all you have is that list. You usually have an, an image and a name. Yep. And uh, if you have something that sounds like everything else, yeah, I think you're in a really bad situation. However, there may be a side effect in that because a lot of these names are so aggressively creative in all the right ways, sometimes in the wrong ones, but mostly I think in the right ways, it almost becomes a hallmark that this isn't a quote unquote real restaurant for people. And um, I think you made a little bit of a mention of that. Like, what are the cleanliness standards? Um, you know, how are they treating their people and other things that I think you care about when you're deciding to um, try a brand and then, you know, eventually become aligned with it. Uh, are there ways that you, that you think of that could start to um, maybe tackle that challenge? The, which part of the challenge, the piece of like, not sounding <laughs> like, a ghost, not like not sounding like a ghost kitchen specifically or like what? Yeah. I don't know if there's going to be a way to fight that or fix that, but more, how, how can people, create assurances, um, maybe outside of the name. Um, yeah, I mean, it's experience. Um, you know, we run into this with a lot of different things. Like it's funny, like one of the other areas where this comes up a lot is like people who are doing things that have to do with like, um, online security, uh, encryption, blockchain, like stuff like that, where everybody wants to sort of highlight the fact that it's secure but the problem with telling people that is that 
security is experiential. Um, you know, it's like if somebody walks up to you on the street and says, you can trust me, right? Like the first <laughs> thing your brain goes to is like, oh, I'm definitely not trusting this person. Um, or like how, um, you know, with airlines, right? Safety is like the most important thing. But is there a single airline called like safety first airlines? Um, it, you know, <laughs> like they understand that, that, you know, safety is experienced um, and trying to, there's like a game theory to it. Trying to just come out and say it uh, doesn't help. It actually hurts. Yeah. Um, which is kind of like feels a little irrational, but like, if you think about those examples, you know, it, it sort of, it makes a lot of sense. And so I think that's just the type of thing where like, you just have to deliver on a regular basis. Like you, <laughs> you have to give people, you know, good food. Uh, that's, that's kind of like considered and where you understand the format, you understand the delivery, like how, all, how all the components work and you, you know, deliver a quality experience. I think, you know, one of the main things that, that we learned during the pandemic is that like, there's lots of places we like to eat. There's lots of places that offer takeout, but the people who really nailed that like pickup experience were the ones that we continued to go back to, um, mm. which is like completely functional, but like, you know, the, the, the restaurants that like, nailed it where you just showed up and there were like enough people standing there and they had like everything clearly labeled on a rack. And you're just like in and out, like, cause that's, you know, when you're picking up food during a pandemic, you want to be in and out, um, yeah. preferably not even in, you want to stay out and then, <laughs> you know, yeah, just like yeah. be able to leave. And so really like the places, you know, some places had trouble adapting, understandably it's, you know, it's difficult, but like, you know, if you went there and like, they didn't know where your order is or they screwed it up and like, there's, a whole bunch of people waiting to like, you know, you're in line with all the like Uber eats people. And it, it's just like the whole thing just turns into like a, what, what am I doing here? Um, you know, whereas like the people who really put in the time and energy to hone the, like, all right, how, like, what do people want here? How do we get them? You know, how do we get them through this process as quickly as possible? Um, th those are the restaurants we kept going back to. So like so much of this is, is experience. Um, you know, the name's about getting you to the front door. Um, and you know, beyond that, uh, it's about experience. Yeah. So I'm sure there were a lot of gems in there, but what I heard was if I launched haven't crashed yet airlines that you would not support me. Um, so I have a lot of planning to do with the rest of my life. Cause that just crashed everything for me. Um, well, better to crash here than there. That's right. <laughs> I specifically love the word yet uh, on the end <laughs> of things. Cause that just like, you're like, wait, wait, like, are you planning on it? <laughs> like it was crashing in your, Hmm. Interesting. Um, so that's, that's great information. I think that's great insights as well. This is going to be the hardest question of the entire um, chat. If you could have one meal before leaving this plane, what would it be and why? And you can't say El Burrito Express number two. <laughs> well, are we talking about airplane food specifically? No, no, just in general. No, not plane as in the airplane, but like this plane of existence. <laughs> Cause there was a great gastropod podcast about like the intricacies of, uh, eating food on airplanes and like how we perceive flavors differently when we're flying, which is you hmm. know really interesting. I highly, highly recommend that. Um, last meal. I mean, I think that <laughs> I'll just go with the first thing that comes to my mind because that's probably how, that's how I make my food decisions most of the time. So I don't see any reason to, you know, to switch it up here. And it may um, be while you're leaving the plane is, is not a, um, <laughs> not a planned 
experience. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, right. Tying tying back to this crash scenario of starting to feel weird about flying. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I love and have always loved uh, baked pasta. Um, any baked pasta dish, ziti, probably my favorite amongst them. Also love lasagna, but like, I think, um, you know, it's one of my favorite things to cook and eat. Um, so I'm going, uh, baked ziti for the one. I love it. And, and from anywhere in particular or, or homemade? Oh, I mean, no homemade. Cause you know, if, if you're going to have a last meal, it's like also a last opportunity to cook. And I, I really enjoy cooking. Um, so I yeah. might as well uh, get as much as I can out of it as opposed to just like sit at a table and have some food show up. And how horrible would it be if like that last meal was like improperly made? <laughs> like what a disappointment to go out like that, but that's awesome. Well, Eli, once again, thank you for your time, your insights, your brain. Um, uh, where, where can people find you? Uh, how can people look you up? Um, I am, let's see, uh, I'm on Twitter at Eli Altman, E L I A L T M A N, uh, Instagram at no picnic press. Uh, and yeah, my company for naming a hundred monkeys, uh, all spelled out a hundred monkeys.com. And, uh, my books are at no picnic press.com. Awesome. And we'll have all those links. And again, I can't suggest them enough, not just because he's on the podcast, but because, well, I've read them and they're great. Um, Eli, thanks again, man. This has been great. And we'll talk real soon. Yeah, good speaking with you, Joe. If you love what we've served up, please follow us at Vigor Branding on Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Medium. Fork Tales is produced by the team at Vigor. Audio and video post-productions provided by Zencaster. Music performed by Jet Trash and licensed through musicbed.com. Joseph handles his own hair, makeup, and stunts. Copyright 2003 to 2021, Vigor Graphic Design, LLC. All rights reserved.